remediation this week is more evolution. This time it's chapter 23, the evolution of populations. It's another long one, but like last week, it was another good one. So I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Biology for Bastards, teaching biology in the most profane way you've ever seen or heard. I'm your host, John Doty. Thanks for listening. This one might come out a little weird. I listened to a podcast yesterday all about voice and how you sound and everything. It's got me very self-conscious, but that's a different story. This season, we're going through AP Biology Curriculum one chapter at a time. We are now on chapter 23, The Evolution of Populations. So it's a little bit different from the last chapter where we were talking about Darwin and everything. Um, This one, we are focusing more on microevolution, which is the change in allele frequencies of a population over time, over multiple generations. Because as we said last time, individuals don't evolve, populations do. So when Darwin was doing his shit back in the day, he had no fucking clue about genetics because he was doing his shit in 1859. Well, well before 1859. That's when he published The Origin of Species. And Mendel, genetics bastard, he was doing his stuff like in 66, but it largely went unnoticed until right around the 20th century. So well before people really understood genetics, Darwin was talking about his natural selection and all that fun stuff. Um, So it turned out when Mendel's ideas actually came out and people started to understand this idea of genetics and inheritance and everything, It just was extra support for what Darwin was saying. And this idea of variation was actually genetic variation. Genetic variation comes in a bunch of different forms. We have discrete characters versus quantitative characters. Um, Sometimes those discrete characters are are called your single gene traits, where you have two, maybe three different phenotypes compared to the quantitative characters or your polygenic traits where you have a much broader um, much broader spectrum of phenotypes and when you have those variations especially with the quantitative characters with your polygenic traits you sometimes can chart it out in something known as a cline what a cline is, it's when you're tracking the change in a character or a phenotype along a geographic axis. And a lot of time it's based on latitude. It could be based on an altitude, but usually you see them for latitude. And in the slides that are up on the website, biologyforbastards.com, just shameless plug there, there's a picture of a cline with fish and their frequency for this one protein for dealing with cold water. And you can see how it clusters around different 
latitude. So what that's really doing is showing this connection between the environment and the frequency for an allele. So it just is tying together that idea that the environment is really what is determining the frequency of these alleles. And these variations that are happening that are responsible for the formation of this cline have to do with a couple different sources. How do we get that genetic variation? And we can get it through mutations, whether point mutations where you're affecting a single base or maybe two or three bases, but you're affecting a single gene. Or you can have chromosomal mutations where you're changing the whole fucking thing. You've got your deletions, duplications, all that shit that we've already talked about that are usually bad. Sometimes they're good. But then the other way you get genetic variation is through the sex, which is fun. So that's what contributes most to the genetic variation, sexual reproduction. And just the way sex works, where you have the random fertilization, a random ass egg being fertilized by a random ass sperm, um, you've got your crossing over, your independent assortment, all that shit's going on. That is what's giving you most of the genetic variation. This brings me to a side note where somebody was complaining that I'm not cussing enough um, in the show. And it's like, you should cuss more. I'm like, well, fuck you. I'll do what I want. I'll teach biology how I want to teach biology. That's the whole point of the show. So if you don't like how little I'm swearing, fuck you. If you are cool with it, you're pretty awesome. If you don't care, you're pretty awesome too. So I just had to put that out there because it popped in my brain. Now, what we are focusing on with this microevolution, while the changes do happen in the individual, they're felt in the population. So that takes us to this idea of population genetics, where we're studying how the population changes genetically over time. And just as a reminder of what a population is, um, it's when you have a group of individuals of the same species living in the same area, interbreeding and producing fertile offspring so that their offspring can then go on and have the sex with each other and make the babies and their babies can go on and have the sex with each other and make the babies again over and over and over again. And when you have this population of reprodu reproducing individuals, you get a gene pool. The gene pool is nothing more than all the damn alleles for all the fucking genes and every single member in that population. So it's like, what do you have to choose from? That's what the gene pool is. And in this, you have all the variation for those different things. But sometimes you have what's, a, what's called a fixed allele, which is when every single member in that population only has one allele for the trait. So there is zero fucking variation. Okay, everybody's exactly the fucking same. It's just... It's fixed. There are no, no choices for that. Um, and the more alleles you have that are fixed, the lower the genetic diversity of that population. And this brings us to everybody's favorite concept, which is the Hardy-Weinberg principle. Now, people struggle so fucking much with this. Like, you don't even know. I don't understand what makes this so hard that people's brains fucking explode or melt or anything and just they are like driving the fucking struggle bus they're not even just on it they are driving it right off a fucking cliff it's not hard so if you are super confused by this after i explain it 
go back, re-listen, because you are probably making it a fuck ton more difficult than you have to. So, what the fuck is the Hardy-Weinberg principle? Well, it's named after Hardy and Weinberg. I don't know their first names and I don't give a shit. But what it's saying is that the allele and the genotype frequencies of a population are going to remain constant from one generation to the next unless, this is a very important unless, they are acted on by forces other than the basic Mendelian segregation and recombination of alleles. That's it. So it's just saying everything's going to stay the same unless there are forces acting on them, which makes a lot of fucking sense. So when they are staying the same, we say that they are in equilibrium. So that's where the allele and the genotype frequencies remain constant. And there are five conditions that need to be maintained in order for equilibrium to happen. And before we get into them, it's very important to point out that equilibrium is the opposite of evolution. Because evolution is the change in the allele frequencies of a population over time. Equilibrium is no change in allele frequencies. So they are opposite. So if you meet these five conditions, and it's five conditions for a given allele, for a given gene. So we're not talking about the entire organism is in Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium. We're talking about a gene is in Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium. You can have all this fucking shit going on in every other gene in the organism, but for the one that you're looking at, if these five conditions are met, you are not evolving at that gene. So what are the five conditions? No mutations. And we'll get into, you know, how these affect shit in just a minute or two after we talk about the math. But um, no mutations, random mating, so no sexual selection, no natural selection, while we're at it, you have to have an extremely large population size and no gene flow. So those are the five conditions to maintain Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium. No mutations, random mating, no natural selection, extremely large population size, and no gene flow. If one, just one of the five, is not met, then you're going to have evolution. You're going to be evolving. Now, here's where everybody just gets fucked up. The math. So there are two... Um, fuck, what are they called? Equations. Shit. Okay. Two equations. And they have the same variables. You have P's and Q's. And one, and this is where looking at the slides would be super fucking helpful. So go check it out. The website's pretty dope. Um, if you haven't checked it out yet, go do it. But one equation calculates allele frequencies and that is p plus q equals one where p is the frequency of the dominant allele in the population and q is the frequency of the recessive allele in the population now it's very fucking important this is one way people screw this the fuck up these numbers have to be in the percent of the total population so it's not just the bare number from counting it's what percentage of the population okay um so p plus q equals one because if you have two alleles 
for a given gene. You have the dominant, you have the recessive. If you add all those up, you get 100%, because those are your two fucking choices. That's the only way math works. So P plus Q equals 1. That's for your allele frequencies. The other equation is P squared plus 2PQ plus Q squared equals 1. And what that does is measures your frequency of genotypes, where P squared is homozygous dominant, because you have two Ps. Okay, 2PQ is your heterozygotes, and Q squared are your homozygous recessive. And if this were a visual medium, I'd show you the reason this comes out that, that way. But it's basically, if you do a heterozygote cross and do a Punnett square, you get one homozygous dominant, so one P squared. Then you get two that are PQ, heterozygous, and then one that is Q squared. So that's where this equation comes from. So you can use that to figure out the frequency of genotypes, even if you don't know all the stuff. And that's where the math comes in. So here's how you solve these fucking things. It's, I'm gonna give it to you step by step. And if you get confused, I can't help you because it's so fucking straightforward. Just take your time, think, and it'll be smooth sailing. So always, always start with Q squared. The reason you start with Q squared is because you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Q squared has to be homozygous recessive. They have to have two recessive alleles. So always start with Q squared. Always. From there, calculate Q. Then you calculate P. So that gets you your allele frequencies, and then you can calculate your genotype frequencies. And that's it. That's all there is to it. Q squared to Q to P to all your genotypes. Fucking done. Simple as shit. That's it. Okay, and if from one generation to the next, you get the exact same numbers, your population is in equilibrium. If you get different numbers, population's evolving. That's it. I've got a couple sample problems um, on the slides. Go check it the fuck out. It'll help you. But to each their own, I can't force you to do something that you don't want to do. Um, but I did say we were going to go into why those five conditions were those five conditions. Explain the mutations, the non-randomly, all that shit. Um, so that's where we're at now. So do the math. There's a bunch of practice problems you can do. You do need to know how to do those. Um, if you are taking the AP exam, um, cause it's probably going to show up cause people struggle with it so much. I don't know why people struggle. It's not that bad. Am I developing vocal fry? Ah, oh, fuck. Vocal fry is that like raspy little little stuff like this. This is vocal fry. I don't think I'm doing it on purpose. I definitely ain't doing it on purpose. I just said ain't. Oh well. Moving on. Why the fuck do mutations and all that shit affect equilibrium? 
Well, if evolution is the change in allele frequencies, if you have a mutation, you are changing the frequencies of an allele. That's super straightforward. So um, it's actually a very minor cause because the fact that you're going to have a mutation that pops up in the gene you're looking at has an effect that's pretty rare. Um, as is non-random mating. So non-random mating or sexual selection is a minor cause of evolution because you're not really affecting allele frequencies, you just might be affecting genotypes. So that's not a huge deal. The main causes of evolution are going to be your natural selection, your genetic drift, and that's part of why you need the large population size, more than that in just a second, and then your gene flow. Those are your main causes. Natural selection, um, genetic drift, which is another type of evolution. That's basically the opposite of natural selection. And then gene flow. So we all know what natural selection is at this point, or you better fucking know. If not, go back and listen to the last episode, because it's kind of a big deal. Um, so just the variations most suited to the environment you're going to survive better, you're going to have more babies, and increase that variation. That's natural selection. Genetic drift is the opposite. So where natural selection, things are being selected for or against, there's a reason that a trait is becoming more common. Genetic drift is just random ass change. It's just random. Okay, so it's like flipping a coin and getting heads five times in a row. That's random as hell. That should not happen, but does. Okay, that's genetic drift. And the reason the Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium requires a large population size is because the smaller your population is, the more those random mass events are going to have an effect on allele frequencies. There's less likely of a chance for something to cancel out your random event. So if you flip a coin a thousand times and you get five heads in a row at one point, you're probably going to get five tails in a row at another point and it's going to cancel out. But if you only flip a coin, you know, ten times, you're not going to it's very unlikely that you're going to get five heads and then five tails. So it's going to be a bigger proportion in your smaller populations. And there's two main types of genetic drift that people talk about. You have the founder effect and the bottleneck effect. It's both ways, or they are both ways, where how a small population will have an effect on the bigger population. So the founder effect is when you have a small group of individuals that are isolated from the larger population and that small group is reestablishing a population. So they're the founders of the new population. And when you have that, you can have certain alleles that are underexpressed or overexpressed. So if you have the small group of individuals and nobody has the allele for blonde hair, you're not going to have blonde hair. Just fucking impossible. Okay, so that's going to be, um, basically, you have a small group starting a new population because they kind of got up and founded the new population. The bottleneck effect is when 
um, there's this sudden change in environment and the population size drops dramatically. So the survivors are the ones who are repopulating and whatever alleles they have, that's all they have to repopulate with. So it's not because of natural selection. The individuals aren't dying because of natural selection. It's just something um, ridiculously sudden, like a natural disaster or something. Um, the way I was explained it in college was we were sitting in a lecture hall and they said if half the roof fell in and crushed everybody, whoever was left, that would be the bottleneck effect. So it's just this random ass event. Um, and the survivors are totally random, not because they are more fit, just they're lucky and they get to uh, repopulate the population. So those are your two types of drift. But the important thing is that drift is random. And then the last major cause of evolution is that gene flow, that movement in or out of a population. This is where you have immigration and emigration, which sound exactly the fucking same, but they are opposites. Don't get me started on that. Movement in or out. Obviously, if evolution is to change in allele frequencies in a population over time, love that definition. I got it memorized. Um, if you are bringing individuals in or removing individuals, you are going to change the frequency of alleles. Because whatever they bring in, they are now contributing to the gene pool or they are removing things from a gene pool that is going to change the frequency of shit. So kind of going back to natural selection, because it's the big one. It's the one that everybody talks about. When you have one of those quantitative characters or those polygenic traits, however the fuck you want to talk about them, um, natural selection can affect the commonality of those characters in a couple different ways. And it's all based on the fact that those variations are going to form a bell curve. You're going to have a lot of individuals kind of in the middle, very similar, and then you're going to have fewer individuals as you get to extremes. So if we want to talk like height as an example, most people are between like five and six feet tall or five, six and six, six. If you want to really narrow down everybody, lots of people are between five, six and six, six. There are fewer individuals between five and five, six and six, six and seven. And as you get even farther away from that average, there are fewer and fewer people. There are very few people under four feet tall. There are very few people over eight feet tall. Okay, so it makes this bell curve. And when you have natural selection working on these characters, working on these traits, that graph, that bell curve can change shape in a couple different ways. You can have directional selection, you could have disruptive selection, and you can have stabilizing selection. So directional selection, that's kind of what most people think about when they think of natural selection. It's where one thing, one side of the curve is going to be more fit than either the middle or the other side. So the whole graph is going to shift in a certain direction. So 
on the slides they're using these mice as examples and different colors and if it's better to be darker then the light individuals are going to die and the darker ones are going to persist and as time goes on darker is going to become more common so the whole population is going to get darker that's directional selection just one side is favored over the middle or the other side and then disruptive and stabilizing are kind of opposites because biology is all the fuck about opposites makes it kind of nice though you have disruptive selection and stabilizing selection what's important with these is what is going on with the average with the ones in the middle in disruptive selection what you have being in the middle sucks because you suck at everything so the middle is selected against in disruptive selection and it's the extremes are what's being selected for so the graph actually goes from like a bell shape into like two humps because it's getting pulled apart essentially you're having directional selection in both directions where if you're in the middle you're fucking screwed because there's individuals on either side of you that are better and then stabilizing selection is just the opposite where being in the middle is amazing you are perfect being on the extremes you're fucked you're just gonna die or whatever okay so with stabilizing selection your graph gets skinnier and it gets taller and everybody becomes more similar disruptive selection your graph is pulling apart you're becoming more different and directional selection you're just shifting in one direction versus the other so that brings us to two last ideas about how populations can change things that are selecting for um, different selection pressures and one of my favorites is sexual selection which is a type of natural selection okay but it's where certain individuals are going to be more likely to obtain mates hey that's sexual selection and people go through sexual selection like you're just not well no judgment if you are but most people aren't just going around having sex with anybody willing to have sex with them hey there's a little standards involved so a lot of things are based on sexual selection and it can lead to sexual dimorphism which is just this um shit what's the word i want to use i don't know principle this idea the fact whatever sexual dimorphism just means there's a difference between the two sexes it could be in size it could be in color it could be in like how fancy they are it could be in behavior it could be in anything sexual dimorphism just means males and females are different from each other and a lot of times or all the times i should say there might be an example here or there but i don't know of any where it's not caused by sexual selection so there are two types of sexual selection there's intrasexual where you're their selection within the same sex so where you have males competing with males 
And you have intersexual, where there's mate choice, where the females are choosing the males. And all this stuff can lead to a bunch of fun things like the peacock's tail. Really big, really fancy looking. Almost gets a kill. That's a case of Fisherian runaway, which is a fun little phrase. Basically, um, the ladies like the tail, so they go nuts and the tail is big and ridiculous. But most things that guys do at least in the animal kingdom, is walking this fine line between what is going to get me laid and what is not going to kill me. So it's this fine line. That big-ass tail that peacocks have, ladies love it. The more of those eye spots, the traditional like peacock feather that you think of, the more eye spots a peacock has, the sexier he is to a peahen. But the more eye spots, bigger his tail, harder it is to fly, easier for him to die. Um, lions, they've got their manes. The bigger and the darker the mane, better the lion is to the lioness. But they also live in the middle of Africa where it's hot as shit. And the bigger and the fluffier and the darker your mane is, the more likely you are to die from heat stroke. So it's like... Do I want to be sexy or do I want to die? And guys are just like, yes. Yes to both. I just want to have the babies. Just wants the sexes. So that's some fun stuff. Yay, sexual selection. We could go into a whole bunch of shit about sexual selection and all this stuff. But that'll be, you know, maybe a different season. We'll see. And then the last thing is how do we preserve all this variation? Because with natural selection, with sexual selection, there is something that is making the individuals more fit than with something else. So there is kind of a quote-unquote better trait, at least for the moment. Okay, So in theory, everybody should have that. But they don't. And the reason they don't, or there's a couple reasons, two of the main reasons, is the fact that sexual reproducing organisms are diploid. And what can happen is if a trait is dominant, then you can get by with just one allele of that, and the recessive allele, which is less successful or less favorable, is basically hidden. So it sticks around. Um, and same thing with, with polygenic traits. Because it's a spectrum, as long as you're good enough, you're fucking set. Okay? So you don't have to be, quote-unquote, the best. You just have to be good enough. I always think of evolution and natural selection as a pass-fail. You can get a D and win and not die and have some babies and live a decent life. You don't have to be A+. You just have to pass. You just have to be good enough to make this cutoff, and you're good. So that's one way. This idea of being diploid and recessive alleles just kind of sneaking through time, kind of hiding out and everything. 
But there's also this idea of sometimes it's good to be a heterozygote. Sometimes it's good to have one copy of the quote-unquote less favorable allele. And that's a process known as heterozygote advantage. And in the... Um, in cases of heterozygote advantage, and the best example of it, or the go-to example of it, is with sickle cell disease. If you have two copies of sickle cell, you have sickle cell disease, it's painful, it causes a lot of problems, it's not good. If you have zero copies of it, all your blood's fine, but you can easily get malaria, which is not good, painful, sick, could die. So malaria, bad. Sickle cell disease, also bad. But if you're a heterozygote, you've got one of each. Half your blood will sickle, the other half won't. So the blood that will sickle is resistant to malaria. So you're pretty good, at least when it comes to not getting malaria. And the part that won't sickle, you know, doesn't cause problems when the other half sickles. So you're walking that line between I'm good in this case, I'm good in that case. I'm not the best on either. I do have some blood that sickles. I do have some blood that can get malaria. But I also have some blood that won't sickle and some blood that is resistant to malaria. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. That's the heterozygote advantage. So you see this in cases where like the environment has some sort of factor that is selecting for this. So like sickle cell, that allele is common in people of African descent because malaria is big in Africa. So it sticks around. There's some talk out there about cystic fibrosis being the same thing I always learned that it was the same scenario as sickle cell but then I was listening to something the other day and this scientist was talking about how there's no connection um, necessarily between the cystic fibrosis allele and like typhoid or cholera or anything it's just not as proven as the connection between sickle cell and malaria and their evolutionary history so you know, I'm just putting out that out there that apparently it was like maybe just a bunch of white people wanting to steal the thunder of people of African descent. So, yeah, we do that, too. But whatever. Um, and then just kind of summing stuff up about natural selection. It's not going to create anything brand fucking new. It only works on what you have. That's it. If you don't have a trait, it can't act on it. And when you have those things being acted upon, like I said, with all the sexual selection shit, it's often a compromise between something. So you might be more attractive, but you might also be more likely to die. It's that case with everything. Like if you want to think about the legs of whales, like... When they evolved away, yes, it was better for swimming, but it basically locked them into a life in the ocean. So there's a compromise there. Okay? And 
natural selection is not this standalone thing. It has to interact with the environment. There's also chance. There's also luck. So while there is this driving force that is natural selection, it's also part of a much bigger picture of evolution. That's a pretty good wrap-up. Damn, I'm kind of pleased with that. So, let's wrap this shit up. Um, If you haven't subscribed, go ahead and subscribe. If you are one of the, you know iTunes user, I think iTunes is gone. If you're an iOS person, um, go on and rate and review us on iTunes. It gets us more listeners. I was checking. We've got a couple reviews up there. Um, right now we're rocking a f- solid five-star review, but we've only got like six reviews. But every one of them has been five stars. So if you go do that and rate the shit out of us, out of me, out of the show, whatever, me and the show, that's the us. Rate the shit out of us, give us five stars, more people will find us, and I can keep doing this more and more. Um, tell your friends about it, tell everybody you know about it, it's pretty great. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. I don't really post to Facebook or Instagram much, but we're the same thing on all three accounts. We're at Bio for Bastards. You can check out the website, biologyforbastards.com. You can tell, you can donate on our webpage, the anchor page. You can support us if you want to just throw some money our way. That's that's also awesome. I like money. Um, and I think that's everything. So, our intro and outro music is the song Feeling Good by Purple Planet Music. Um, I appreciate every single one of you for listening. I still can't believe I'm doing this. That's amazing. Um, and until next time, thanks for listening. So you may have just heard an ad, but I can't end with an ad. So just wanted to say, follow us on Twitter at Bio4Bastards. Um, our intro and outro music is Feeling Good by Purple Planet Music. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, tell everybody you know about it. And again, thanks for listening.